0: I recognize so this. Who is this?
1: You should be
0: it's a group called Wet Leg. <laughs> I know I've heard this.
2: Guy.
0: Oh, that sounds good. On a shade lounge all day long. Oh. Thank you. Behind every great fortune lies a great crime Because this is hell We've spent the last three shows discussing what's happening at the UN Climate Change Summit, COP26 Taking place in Glasgow, Scotland Today we're coming back home to Chicago to assess a city budget that Mayor Lori Lightfoot insists is the most progressive budget in the history of the city of Chicago in fact, many activists and self-described socialists affiliated with the Democratic Socialists of America insist that Mayor Lightfoot is correct and deserves to be commended. After all, four of the six DSA-affiliated aldermen, including those on the City Council Socialist Caucus, uh, caucus voted for the budget. So it must be the most progressive ever, right? If four out of the six DSA-affiliated alder people voted for the budget, it's got to be progressive. But how can a city budget that actually increases the amount of money spent on police be seen in any way as progressive, especially in light of last summer's uh, 2020s uh, massive protests here in Chicago against the police? And when it comes to spending on social services like mental health that went sorely underfunded during the administration of former Mayor Rahm Emanuel, sure, those areas got more funding than they did under Rahm, but... Having Rom as a standard is a very, very low bar when it comes to progressiveness. That's why he's not mayor anymore. But unlike Rom, while the budget was being negotiated under Mayor Lightfoot, grassroots groups and community activists, including today's guest, worked together on the Chicago Budget Coalition, a public budget collective that helped secure over $1.2 billion in what the coalition saw as vital programs. Despite all that Exactly how progressive Did the budget end up being We'll find out when we speak with Jason Perez Co-author of the rampant mag article Crumbs and police funding Assessing the new Chicago budget Which Jason wrote with Bettina J And past This Is Hell guest Brian Bean Jason organizes with DSA Afro-Socialists And Socialists of Color Caucus And is a self-described Political economist in training You can follow Jason on Twitter at Iola Ella, that's I O L A E L L A. His co authors, Bettina co founded Liberation Library, a books to incarcerated young people project, and serves in leadership roles with. Chicago Afro-Socialist Defund CPD And the Chicago DSA Brian is a member of the Rampant Editorial Collective And an editor and contributor to the book Palestine, a socialist introduction Brian was on this cell back in March With Jonathan Ellis to discuss The article they co-wrote At Rampant Mag Rebuilding the anti-imperialist movement In a new era Rampant Mag can be found online at RampantMag.com And you can follow Rampant Mag on Twitter at Rampant Mag I'm your Bitter Blind Broke Gap radio show podcast live streaming host Chuck Mertz If it's Wednesday producing must be Richard Norwood Richard how have you been sir
2: I've been well nothing really new over here but did you see Mel this morning? I did. He was hiding out in his little uh, underneath the st- underneath the landing underneath hide, the, hideout.
0: Yeah, he doesn't want to go in his house anymore. I have a feeling that some other cat has been in there, and uh, he's freaking out. So I'm trying to feed him inside of his house to get him back in there for the winter. Did you hear about uh, he had an interview?
2: I heard. I didn't hear the interview, but how did it go?
0: Uh, uh, well, there were only three people in the bar, and one of them was incredibly offensive. So. <laughs> I'm sure it went well Immediately following today's show, Richard I will be killing two birds with one stone Which just seems cruel and, frankly, lazy If you're going to spend the energy to take the life of another living being You should at least not be economical in the brutality that you are about to unleash Why should anybody get off so easily while in the process of dealing out death? So how will I be accomplishing two goals in one action Which is what it means to kill two birds with one stone A phrase... I'm certain offends animal rights activists, let alone birds. Well, I will tell you exactly how, following our guest, and I can promise you, no birds will be harmed in that message. But more importantly than any metaphor, any metaphorical cruelty, I'll be showing to our avian comrades. Richard, what is this week's question from hell?
2: Talking about metaphors, (laughs) in this house, we believe... Dot, 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 what?
0: (laughs) Did you see the ones on Twitter yet? (laughs) I started to. Oh, my God, the one sign. Yes. Uh, Spectacular. You're going to have to read that one to share that one. It's really fantastic. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell merchandise you want. You can check out all of our swag right now by going to thisishell.com, clicking on support, where you will see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Remember, without you, we got nothing. So thanks to all of you for your support. We are not a not-for-profit. We don't make enough profits to afford to be a not-for-profit. We don't take any money from commercials or any kind of foundations, corporate or otherwise. So all we got is you. Check out all of our stuff right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support, where you will see our winter beanie, which is becoming incredibly appropriate because of the changing weather, our trucking cap, our coffee mug, our t-shirts, our tote bags, our flash drive, history of the 21st century. Featuring dozens of interviews from the 2000s All of that stuff and more Including our medical face mask Is available at thisishell.com When you click on support You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell At our Facebook page facebook.com/thisishellradio. You can direct message it to us via Twitter This is Hell Radio, but we must have your answer by the end of today's Wednesday show When we are announcing this week's winner Following Jeff Dorchin in the moment of truth During this week's moment, Jeff assesses the damage caused by liberalism's success in the marketplace of ideas Richard will be sharing your answers to this week's question from Hell Following our conversation with Jason Perez On exactly how progressive the 2022 Chicago City budget really is Again, the question from Ella is In this house, we believe What? In this house we believe What? We are looking for new board operators Here on This Is Hell To join our staff If you are interested in running the board As Jess and Richard and Alex do Email me at chuck at com. And as we've been mentioning We actually pay a living wage. If you would like to join us here on This Is Hell, email me at at com. We are looking for people who can run the board anywhere from once a week here at our studio above Carrie's Lounge 2251 West Devon in Chicago's West Ridge neighborhood with shows beginning weekdays at 10 a.m. or twice a week or three or even four times a week We are very flexible and if you can only do it a couple of times a month we can work within your schedule We are very flexible. This is your opportunity to have access to a professional studio for your own projects as well, whether that's a podcast or you just want to create some sort of audio montage this position does come with a living wage that is incredibly important for me all of a sudden because I felt really bad about only having volunteers here on the show. If you are interested in becoming a board operator and earning a living wage here on This Is Hell email me at chuck at com. chuck at com. coming up How progressive is the allegedly most progressive budget in Chicago's city's history? We will also tell you what's happening on our exclusive Patreon podcast, which you can subscribe to at patreon.com slash thisishell, and have some of your answers to this week's question from Hell, which is, in this house we believe what? In this house we believe what? Live from the United States, where the law is far, far too often the crime... This is how Chicago's mayor, Lori Lightfoot Two and a half years into her first term in office An office she attained by running as a progressive Who would invest in communities far more than her predecessor ever did While reforming a police department that desperately needed it She insists that the 2022 city budget she just signed is the most progressive in the city's history. After all, unlike earlier budgets, a coalition of activists worked hard to get spending on programs that the former mayor thoroughly neglected. But as today's guest and their collaborators argues, this budget isn't as progressive as the mayor and some activists want you to believe. Here to help us have a better understanding of Chicago's budget for 2022 and the impact activists had on it. Jason Perez is co-author of the rampant mag article, Crumbs and Police Funding Assessing the New Chicago Budget, which Jason wrote with Bettina J and past This Is Hell guest, Brian Bean. Welcome to This Is Hell, Jason.
1: Yeah, thank you for having me.
0: It's great having you on the show. I'm so glad that we're going to be able to talk about this. We've been spending far too much time overseas and in other places. That, sure, they need, them needs the attention, <laughs> but at the same time, let's get back to Chicago and find out what's happening here. You write okay. on Wednesday, Chicago October...
1: Chicago over everything.
0: Yeah, that's right. Uh, you write on Wednesday, October 27th, Lori Lightfoot celebrated passing her 2022 budget in what the Sun-Times described as record time and the most tranquil budget season in recent memory. Lightfoot boasted that she delivered the most progressive budget in the history of the city, we have a more critical view of the budget and think reflecting on its passage is important. So, Jason, why do you think this passed in record time? If it wasn't a progressive budget, why was it passed in such a tranquil fashion? Or is that why it was passed in a tranquil fashion? Because it wasn't progressive?
1: Yeah. um, I mean, I don't necessarily have all those answers, you know. I think um, you know, we were I mean, at least with the article, we just wanted There seemed to be a feeling within some some folks, like some organizations within progressive and socialist circles that wanted to, you know, paint some of the, like some of the aspects of the budget overall as like a progressive victory and and even perhaps like a socialist victory. Uh, And an example of like, particularly an example of, you know, what makes a good compromise, you know, for socialists on those terms. And so we, we obviously really disagreed with that um and um you know wanted just to lay out a clear reason why um but you know the the mayor had come out fairly early that she wanted the the budget to be wrapped up sooner so and w- w- which I'm not particularly against you know it's it's easier to do good actions when the weather's a little bit warmer in late october instead of early december when the budget usually gets pra- uh, passed so um but yeah so i yeah yeah
0: it's, but one thing I was thinking about is, you know, Mayor Lightfoot is—is uh, is she correct that this is the most progressive budget in the history of the city because the city has never had a progressive budget before?
1: No, 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 no. I mean, I think, and that's where we're trying to go with the, the point around. So, I mean, just to you know, we're we're doing this in the spirit of like a you know a conversation and a dialogue with you know like a lot of our colleagues um, and comrades, you know, that 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 we're really close to and that we struggled with um especially along like the the socialist electoral project but um you know the, the piece that we said around you know that you know to even return like um like some of like you know the, the, like let's say for example the mental health clinics uh, clinic spending right to like to pre-rom levels right you need around 25 million ccw i think put the figure on 100 you know 100 million and that's like within the context of like not a robust progressive kind of you know like more bernie standard style progressive type of um, mental health services within the city of chicago so you know we we just feel like the bar was being misrepresented of certainly by lightfoot which is fine you know like i mean that Lightfoot's going to do what Lightfoot's going to do um but at least in terms of and i, I don't think misrepresented but just like um you know we weren't using the right measurements of like how should we measure like a progressive victory or socialist victory and so i i, I don't think it's progressive um the the main reasons is because of the police funding increase right the property tax increase and in, in particularly at a municipal level most property tax increases should be viewed as a form of regressive taxation that primarily benefits developers um, and and landowners at the expense of um renters Um, And even like property. And that's why I say like like landowners, like people who just own like tons of actual land within the city of Chicago and property versus like single home owners. Right. Which is which is very different. And then um, the last piece was like the commitment to pay out the banks at the level of interest um, and fees that that we're currently paying off, um, you know, our quote unquote debt to to the banks for that. Like, you know, as city of Chicago, we don't have to pay that debt um, you know, we're fairly, we're one of the largest economies in the world, let alone, um, in the United States of America. And, um, you know, we, we could easily renegotiate anything with the bank. And also we could easily, you know, not pay out the bank and and still be fine with our funding. So, um, and I, you know, I can get into the technical details of that later, but so there's three big reasons on it. And then the, the money on the other side towards social services doesn't even get to like, you know, let's say Harold Washington era, or even daily first daily era well second daily and first daily era like pre especially but, but second daily pre privatization levels of funding for social services, it doesn't even get to those levels so. Um, so those are the things we just wanted to kind of put in a context in terms of what we're measuring um, and conceptualizing what is or isn't a progressive budget so. That was a little bit Long-winded My apologies
0: Oh uh, no Go on I mean, That's why we're have, Having a long-form interview That's what we do Here on the show I want you to go In-depth on this You mentioned the CCW That's the Collaborative For Community uh, Wellness I just want to make sure our,
1: our, My apologies, our, My no, that's apologies.
0: What, no that's fine uh, But yeah. uh, one of the things That you also point out in, your, in the article With your collaborators Is that in Chicago With the strength Of our movements And the number of Socialist city councilors In office How we evaluate the budget Is an important task As it reflects On our future Organizing strategy This assessment thus far uh, breaks or uh, Bears marks of confusion Indeed the votes of alderpersons Affiliated with the Democratic Socialists of America Were not consistent with Four voting in favor of the budget And two voting against it So what would you say, Jason, to a DSA Affiliated alderperson Who argues they did not want to spend Whatever political capital they had On voting against a budget they knew was going to pass How damaging could voting Against the mayor's budget be for a dsa-affiliated alder person's agenda
1: yeah i mean you know they're, they're all members of dsa and um you know and i think you know that they can you know like sp- speak to their votes i i think my concern um and i think our concern when we're writing this is that we didn't want this to be about um you know aldermen who did like bad votes versus good votes you know like we don't you know, like. Um, we were much more concerned about like um, we're, we we were much more concerned about like the lack of political program and strategy that you know as it's as socialists that we have as members who are part who are part of DSA um, and then also um there and then also like the the budget coalition table that was that was present you know like with groups like uwf you know united working families sorry um grassroots collaborative you know chicago teachers union um and then you know democratic socialists of america groups like that um we were more concerned with that like that how that table is currently constructed is, is more concerned with process at the expense of like a political program that's socialist and abolitionist. Um, and because of that, then that fed into the, I think, you know, the divided nature of the vote amongst the socialists themselves. Um, but, you know, the Socialist Caucus, right, which is actually five members, is a woefully underfunded, you know, underfunded caucus um, in the city of Chicago. Like just for comparison, progressive caucus has um i think one full-time staff at least and then a few other staff who support like you know like part-time or like ad hoc like add hours to it to like actually support the making of that caucus and keep it running the socialist caucus do- that doesn't have that you know and you know the organizations that um support it like chicago teachers union sciu hcii um, you know, they could easily, you know, give money so that they can actually have the staffing needed so that they can, you know, get on the same page, but they don't have that. And, you know, that's part of like the things we were trying to tease out was that, um, you know, when you don't have the right infrastructure um, around folks and uh, and around people like the older the, the older people, but then also around like our larger electoral project, especially our socialist electoral uh, project um, within DSA, then, um, you know, this is what happens. You know, you have a confused uh, process where people aren't on the same page, they're all over the place, and the side that has more money and more staffing and more resources um, are able to get, you know, their side uh, together better and um, out-organize us. So that's, you know, and, and, and that's our concern. And that's what we want the conversation to be instead of the conversation falling into like, um, you know, either like the grandstanding of like, this is a real progressive victory this is the best thing the socialists have ever done, you know, which is on one side um, or, um, you know, you know, these, these aldermen who voted this way, they betrayed, you know, A, B and C. Um, and it's usually people who are saying this are a part of the same organization that, you know those socialist aldermen are a part of, or, or, or are comrades with those other organizations. So you know it's it, it's on us also. It's not just on um, the the, the aldermen to figure out like you know what to do next, especially when the next budget season comes. Is that a
0: dead end? Just blaming it on the aldermen?
1: Yeah, I think it. I <laughs> yeah, I think it is. I, I I do. I mean, I think there is for sure moments where. Um, where, where that does happen and that where it's genuine, like, you know, I think the the votes that Maria Haddon and, and Andre Avescas gave last year, you know, did last year in favor of the budget. Um, I I think the, it was right to blame those aldermen and that they did go against um, what, you know, I think constituents wanted and what, like, the larger, like, progressive and social electoral po- uh, project was going after. Um, and they didn't, I mean, theirs was not an effective compromise at all, you know, like, you know, what... What they claim they got last year is what, in fact, you know, like the four aldermen who voted yes actually got you know done in the budget this year, you know, in terms of actually funding program, you know like you know, funding the mental health clinics in, in a way that it hasn't been funded in you know almost 20 years, you know um, since since daily the, you know the second daily was, was mayor. So I mean the, these are real changes and meaningful uh, material changes in people's lives, which didn't happen last year, which was, w- w- which is why the, those votes were, were bad. But we wanted to, and that's usually like, it's usually a little bit easier to judge those and like move on those and be like, you know, you're wrong for this. And, you know, you wanna hold people's feet to the fire. I think it gets a little bit harder when it's something where, you know, you do have about $1.2 billion of, um, of progressive funding and revenue put into the budget that was not gonna be put into it unless, um, you know, all, all the different groups of the public budget coalition table um, and socialists socialist alderman you know, fought to make that happen. Um, you know, we just wanted to, you know, just be cautious about how we think that this is a blueprint or a model for moving forward, because we don't think it's a blueprint or a model for moving forward when it comes within the context of more police, 11% increase in police funding, um, and increase in property taxes, and then a commitment to continue paying, um, banks, you know, money that they, um, they, sh- they shouldn't have in the first place, you know,
0: Why? This is just a big picture question. Why are mental health services so important to grassroots activists, to organizers, community organizers? Why is there so much importance and so much focus by the left, by progressives, or not by progressives, but by the left, on mental health services?
1: Um. I mean, you know, Chicago is. I mean, I think especially in Chicago, it was one of the few cities that had you know, what you could call like a robust public mental health facilities. Um, and that was fought by like, you know, like uh, over decades by many like radical and progressive groups beforehand. And so, um, and, um, you know, daily and then ROM in particular, made every effort to gut it to privatize it. And currently, what we have now is like this patchwork of kind of, of nonprofit type mental health services. Um, and, you know, we wanted it, we wanted it to be free and accessible to the public. Um, a lot of times many people's, even if they have like, um, especially, you know, working class folks, even if they have health insurance, it's like, you know, very narrow health insurance, which is usually for what what's, you know, I guess defined as clinical medical, health. I mean, these definitions are, 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 are BS, but, um, you know, they don't support mental health services in the way that they need to. And so um, people have to come out of pocket or they just don't get it. Um, or it's just not accessible, right? Like the mental health clinics, in particular, in Chicago, um, are usually um, in more accessible places in Black and land next um, working class communities. So, um, and and also is an opportunity to um, this is this might be getting too much into the weeds around budgets, right? But there's you know there's areas that you can fund in budgets where then once you fund them. The money is like baked in there, like for a long time, right? And then other areas where even if you fund them one year, they won't get funded next year, right? And so, you know, the the nature of the compromise for the mental health clinics, um, in particular, was w- was good, um, in the sense of that like the money is baked into um, the in, into the budget, like for the foreseeable future for a long time. Um, you know, our only contention was that um, you know the number. You know, need and it, it, that it's a good start and it's a good beginning, and and the people who fought for that would say that also, um, but that um, you know, we just wanted to point out that it's far less than even um, you know, from how we understand it. If if people have different figures, that uh, you know, like you know, that's you know, I'm open to them, but how we understand it, it's still under the amount of money that um, Brom funded them at, and then certainly under under the amount of money per year that um, of course, Mayor Daly funded them at, you know. And I don't think anyone would say that under Mayor Daly, we had a progressive mental health system um, with the funding levels that were there at that time, you know. And so, um, you know, you know, we're socialists and we're progressives, right? I mean, I'm a socialist. I'm a revolutionary socialist. So, you know, ultimately, I believe that, like. You know, we 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 have to topple this thing. You know, like we have to top um you know the top of the capital state, the racial capitalist state in this, in this country, um in order to like bring about socialism or even kind of Elizabeth Warren style progressivism. But, um in order to get there, I think it's important to have like an electoral strategy and a legislative strategy um, as part of the way to get there. Um, but if we're going to choose to go that route. We have to make sure that when we do make compromises, we don't do it. We do it in a way that empowers the left, makes the left stronger, and also makes the working class stronger, um, and not in a way that um, disempowers the left and disempowers the working class. And um, you know, more police um, and um, regressive, regressive, punitive taxation. Um, like the current property tax system that we that we that that we live under, which you know I'm pro tax, right? I'm not like a libertarian or anything. Like you know I'm not anti tax, but when you have regressive, and punitive taxes, um, they have a, an effect of right corroding working class power, left power, and enabling um, you know one percent power and um, you know rich people. So.
0: So I just want to uh, pause on that just for a second, because you mentioned this before, and I want to make sure people understand this. How are property taxes regressive? How do property taxes, how are property taxes, where everybody pays the exact same amount, how is that more of a burden on the poor than it is on the wealthy?
1: Yeah. I mean, and and there's plenty of ways we could have a, we could have a progressive property tax system, right? And, you know, sometimes know another thing that was happening with the budget stuff was people would be like well we can't do you know we can't do progressive um revenue stuff or we can't do um you know progressive property tax like stuff because um you know in chicago you know chicago's banned from doing things based on income right so um but 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 that ban is based on just like on on taxation right it's not based on fines it's not based on fees you can and there, and there's other ways to determine income, or just like general wealth that a person has, um, that that's not tied directly to like income in terms of like how like the bill is written that 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 comes from Illinois um, saying that. So, um, so there's ways to do that, but you know, so our current property tax regime is regressive, um, in 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 two big ways, right? It's um, first of all, you know, even though we're in Cook County and all the money should be shared. Like within all of Cook County, right? We're like we're like 50 different school districts, like all, all these different things. So then the the, the money doesn't come come in a, a equitably that way, which is a lot of the suburbs, right? They like um they have more money than the city of the residents of City of Chicago. Um, and we want those tax dollars. Um, and then the other way is that within City of Chicago itself, um, you know, it's just it's just like any other kind of flat tax, is that um, you know, let's say if um I don't know, you know. If 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 I have ten dollars, right, and you're taxing me at um like so, if it costs seventy dollars to live, right, um or no, I'm sorry, seven dollars. It would cost seven dollars to live, right? Um, I have ten dollars, um, and you tax me at fifty percent. Um, all I all I will have is fifty dollars left, right? So that I don't have enough money to live, um a rich person, right? Let's say you tax, you, you, you do the same tax to them. Right. Um, so, um, whatchamacallit, you tax them at 50%, um, they will then have, um, enough money to live on, you know, like they will still be able to provide for themselves. They'll have enough money to live on and like spend the money on any other frivolous thing that they want to, as they should. Um, and that's like basically what's happening to property owners in Chicago. Um, and for sure renters is that um, if you own a single family home like let's say in Inglewood or like where the Obama library is being built up or where the Tiger Woods golf course is being built up property taxes are going through the roof, right? Those are the areas in the city of Chicago that had the highest property taxes increases in the past five years. a lot of times in those property tax increases, outpace the cost of the act to pay down the mortgage itself. Or a lot of times these folks are not even paying down a mortgage anymore. They pay, pay, all they pay for is property tax. Um, But then that that property tax payment monthly becomes bigger than even what their mortgage payment was. Um, So then, whereas, you know, you have like huge millionaire, like, you know, like million millionaire, like hundred millionaire um, developers who are able to have like, you know, 30 or 40 properties, um, and they pay that same amount of tax, but it's a lot—it's it's a lot less of a tax burden because they just have more cash on hand. So yeah, that, that was a little bit all over the place, but uh, hopefully that that helped a little bit.
0: Yeah, it did. Uh, you are uh, in the in the. Chicago Democratic Socialists of America, in their statement on the budget, they say the CDSA was a part of the 2022 Chicago Budget Coalition, a table of Chicago progressive and leftist groups that represented the most organized presence of the left to agitate around the city budget since the Harold Washington era. Is the Chicago Budget Coalition in and of itself a victory for progressives or socialists? Is this a potential stepping stone for more power for the left in Chicago?
1: Um, I mean, I think it can be right. Um, but you know, just currently it's not. And, um, you know, I think an example of this is, um, you know, there's a tendency of like an over-reliance on the older, on the older folks to like be the lead people on everything. Um, and then also a lack of a commitment to want to, um, really fight on the issue of property taxes and also fight on the issue of defund right like um of defunding the police and investing in our communities um and as long as that posture is taken then you know we're not gonna you know we're we're not gonna get to where where, where we gotta go um and you know and by 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 fight for it you know we just basically mean that like you know just you know making sure that you're having like you know Um, phone banks to aldermen making sure that you're doing door knocking making sure that you're doing all the things that a political operation is supposed to do in order to win um so i mean i think and then i think the other missing piece is that a lack of a coherent um agreed upon political strategy that's attached to our political platform you know as socialists and abolitionists you know i think what what happened with this budget is that everyone started really fetishizing the process or technical aspects of the budget right like this part means this, so we can't do that. Um, you know, you know, we talked to all these groups and they said okay so that's fine and you know, in order to build a good like socialist movement or just any sort of radical movement it's able to combine. Um, political program, which is like the politics that we believe in right so like. You know we as you know we as progress you know we as radicals and then we we as leftists and socialists believe in progressive taxation we believe in funding communities and less funding in in police we believe in um public mental health care right like you know public health care period there's all these different like very solid things and explainable things and the things that we usually run on is our political platform and then Um, and then you have a process, which is like what the coalition budget table is, you know, um, and you know, that has to, and then you have like the technical aspects of like how a thing works, like a policy budgets, how you get it implemented, even once you get it passed, how do you make sure, you know, they follow through and actually implement the thing, you know, um, and it's the marriage of those, of of those three things that are, that are important. And. You know in a neoliberal world especially you know and in like the liberal imagination and sometimes in the progressive imagination you know you let the you know they let you know you let whoever um the process and the technical aspects trump the actual political program that you're trying to win um and why do we need the political program in order to keep on getting the wins that we've had electorally Right. When we when we run as socialists, we make a lot of promises to people. Right. We promise some some aspect of like equitable education, some aspect of, um, you know, um, fixing um, income inequality, some redress around public safety in terms of police brutality and violence. Um, and in terms of alternatives to policing and then on top of it, um, fully funded, like, you know, community centers, park districts public transportation, all these things, right? Like these are these are the things that most socialists run on in anywhere that you go on. And so if we're not actually delivering those the, the those material wins, it's hard to build a coalition of the working class that we need in order to can, to sustain those wins and for sure to expand the amount of socialists that we have in office. Um, and without that, then, you know, I, I would argue then you have less oxygen for the social movements that, you know, the. the that we want to see keep going, right? Like having the Socialist Caucus and the Socialist presence during the uprisings was really, really important, right? It gave a legitimacy to the protests that were happening and especially to the people who were being incarcerated um, while the protests were happening to show that like what Mayor Lightfoot was doing was wrong. Um, And, you know, we just, we need more of that. And, but if we're not delivering on our political platform, first and foremost, and making it about like process and 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 technical aspects of it then you know we're just as bad as you know what just happened with the with the infrastructure bill you know where it's just like i don't care if there's a fucking filibuster i just need the thing passed and y'all need to pass it and and make it happen you know um yeah so
0: So uh, you also point out that neither the collaborative for community wellness nor Lightfoot's figure would provide a socialist conception of a robust non-carceral public mental health service. That would transform the lives of the working class in Chicago. Even CCW's figure would be returned to the status quo, which was a bare minimum to meet the needs of Chicagoans. That makes the deal for $6.5 million even more concerning and puzzling, especially when other comrades, allied organizations, and select socialist alderpersons frame it as a pivotal win or victory instead of the bare minimum that it is. So what's wrong with getting something rather than nothing and claiming that something is a big victory? What could that mean? for future funding of any mental health services in Chicago or the socialist or progressive agenda.
1: Yeah, I mean I think a b- b- big picture on it is is that um you know f- yes to compromise, right? You the, at a at, you know and I'm 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 more of like an abolition realist and socialist, you know, like um a lot of my comrades are more on the you know like anar- anarchist bent right and um, you know they have huge criticisms of the electoral socialist project um and and i think at some level rightfully so right and i think this is a really fragile experiment of trying to elect socialists into office right we've been only doing this for a little bit and we're trying to figure out for, for, figure our way through it um and so when we do make these kind of compromises, it's important that we make them in a way that, as I said before, empowers our base, right? And empowers our people and puts us in a position to win even more seats in the future, which then allows us to deliver more on like the political program that, that, that we're fighting for. Uh, you know, the issue with, you know, this, the, the issue was, was the nature of the compromise versus compromising in and of itself which is um you know we felt that was had echoes and remin- like in, in of why social democracy failed in the face of neoliberalism which is that you know and and why the great society failed why the biggest failures of, of the new deal one you know like a part of them were was due to racism but then another part was a commitment to um i think you know People don't necessarily see this as this, but it's you know it's connected at some level to, to anti-communism, but a you know, commitment to either paying for military right or paying for police and prisons right. So some form of carceral punitive institutions within society, which I would say are like the state-making um, forms of of um, of society versus um, you know the democratic government forms making of society, which is like affordable housing, social welfare programs. And if we keep on doing compromises where, you know, we get, you know, we get some of our social programs. And even if we get like social programs at the level of new deal and great society, right. Which was like, you got so much, you know, they got so much money and then cities also got so much money. I mean, that, that, that's how, you know, modern public housing came to be. Right. Um, but we did it at the expense of, I mean, it was one part racism, but then another part of a commitment and they're, and they're intertwined too, but like a commitment to, funding police to what what we what and funding police in a way that then led to the undermining of those very social welfare programs. Um at like a technical level, right? But then um in terms of like why then public housing fell apart, why then schools became underfunded. But then at the at the political level also in terms of you know you say you're a radical, you say you're a progressive, you say you're a Democrat, whatever. Um, but then you're not delivering on these core things as the politician that you said you're going to deliver on, or if you do, they're very, very much compromised. So, why, you know, why keep going with it? And I think an uh, an impact of neoliberalism has been that we so we don't even understand. Um, how robust social democracy was or like the liberal version of social democracy was in this country that then like when we see like the marginal increases in social welfare spending that we got um, this year in Chicago, um, we think that's a pivotal shift versus understanding that it's not even the amount of money that um, social programming money that um, was happening under the, the second daily administration, which is I mean, you know, that's the that's the administration that like privatized everything. You know, like that's the administration that like brought us to this that that, that ushered in neo- neoliberalism in really fundamental ways. So, um, and we just we just got to get that right. You know, we just got to um figure out a way through it. You know, I don't I don't think there's any easy answers. Um, but we got to struggle through it. And we were just really worried when we started hearing a lot of our co- comrades. Start framing this as a victory, and we feel like the more appropriate thing was to say that this is a um that this is a compromise and this is the best that we can do and you know it was a product of like some disorganization on our part and some just rough back and forth on our part and you know we're trying to do something here um we want to do better and we're going to do better let's try to figure it out and you know I think that type of posture i think is better for the project overall instead of trying to get into this competition of saying either this is the worst thing ever and this is like a crime against humanity or, you know, this is the best victory ever and, um, you know, like socialists are are on the rise, you know, so I think, you know, but both of those approaches don't really get us anywhere.
0: We are speaking with Jason Perez, co-author of the Rampant Mag article, Crumbs and Police Funding, Assessing the New Chicago Budget. You can follow Jason on Twitter at IolaElla. That's I-O-L-A-E-L-L-A. You and your colleagues write that what the budget did deliver came directly from the largesse of federal aid money accounting for $3.5 billion of this year's budget, roughly 22% of the total. This money, primarily CARES Act and American Rescue Plan funds, will expire, putting the security of these social programs primarily funded by those federal dollars at risk. So after those federal funds related to the pandemic are gone and without further emergencies or further emergency aid money, Will Chicago return to what little money the Rahm Emanuel administration did put into mental health?
1: Um, no, no. I mean like the, you know, the, 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 the money around mental health and that was like spearheaded by like, um, Alderman Ro- Rosanna, um, you know, is, has been like is on pretty solid footing. Right. Um, no, the other programs, that's not the case. Right. And so, um, you know, and so that's, you know, and that's terrible. <laughs> um, and you know, the reasons why it's terrible is cause like, then we're gonna have to fight for these things all over again. We're gonna have to fight for more funding of it. All the, all this funding was incremental funding. Right. Um, and you know, we need much more funding to actually meet the needs of, of the people that are out there. Um, and then also we need much more funding just to like politically show that like it's been impactful and that it's worth, it's worth something, you know? Um, so, and th- that's why we are pushing the piece on progressive revenue too, that some form of progressive revenue should have been on the table in order to guarantee the future of the funding of these programs. Um, Cause if not, then, um, you know, it's going to be the same old, same old, which is right. What, what we saw with the budget, which is, Some cuts here, some marginal increases in social welfare spending, and then huge increase for policing, which is what we just saw. Um, (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. And
0: and, And um, one of the things you mentioned earlier, I wanted to get back to. uh, You write that uh, the public debt that constrains public funding in Chicago is a liberal political construction that can largely be overcome at the city level. But as far as we know, no such attempts were made, which then positioned us within the political calculus of neoliberalism of austerity or minimal funding of basic social programs how in your opinion is public debt a a liberal political construction
1: yeah i mean there's like so there's a story and and this is like within like progressive left economics kind of talk you know but like um and like in policy circles right there's this thing of that like well we can't do this because the state doesn't allow a b and c right or we can't do this because and it's you know it's tied to funding, and that's and that's true, right? Like, so you know, organizations like Alec and the right wing have been phenomenal, unfortunately, at um um highly, you know, highly organized, and they're much better resourced than we are, um, at making sure that um when it comes to things like like you know, um progressive taxation, um that it's really hard for cities to do to 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 engage in it and make it happen. Um, but a city, especially if a city has like a fairly good economy, has multiple ways to finance itself. You don't need taxation just to finance yourself. Um, and um, you know, one easy way is just through a public bank, right? Um, another way is through um, a city starting to issue its own, its own currency. Um, another way is you know, cities and cities working together to put the demands on the Federal Reserve to be able to lend, um, to to be able to get money directly from the Federal Reserve instead of having to go to banks for financing. So, um, there's multiple ways. Like you know, two of them at a technical level that I that, that, that I said, and the other one would be more political in terms of putting pressure on on the on the Federal Reserve. But there is ways to do it, and then and then there's a bunch of ways where you can just um, put a bunch of you know. In Chicago, poor people in Chicago have a bunch of fines and fees put on them, right? In terms of parking tickets, in terms of towing, um, and these are like things that are owned by like you know like private equity corporations and stuff like that. But like, and they get fined and feed to death, right? Um, and literally to death for, for some folks, and, and certainly into poverty and bankruptcy. Um, and these are fines and fees that are supposedly on their face egalitarian, open for everybody, da da da, right? But it's it's the things that you find and fee that then usually determine if poor people are going to have to pay more of it and working class. people are going to have to pay more of it or if rich people are going to have to pay more of it. So we could just easily just find and fee the things that rich people do. <laughs> and you could just, you know, do a surveying of like the things rich people do. Rich people like to buy condos, rich people like to buy this, you know, rich people like to buy development. like, And you can just find and fee those things um, just as much and with just, just as much intensity, um, and, and then be able to work around the whole, like, you can't tax based on income or, 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 wealth holdings. Um, and there's tons of solutions out there like that, that would, you know, bring in the money that's needed to fund all our programming. Um, it's just not gone after, you know, and, you know, it's just not fought for people are like, Oh, it sounds a little bit too silly, or it sounds a little bit too this and, you know, whatever nonsense. And so um but you know i think politically we're never gonna keep winning if we we say yes and okay to these things and and we say yes and okay to these things and don't have any sort of alternative presented um you know like the innovation of bernie sanders was not that he was just saying medical companies are you know our our health insurance companies are bad and they are doing us wrong um he said no like Medicare for all, here's the solution. Here's the simple thing that could just take care of this, you know. And, and we have those tools without having to say, oh, the state won't let us do it or the federal government won't let us do it.
0: You point out that, with your colleagues, you point out that these modest gains come at a heavy price an 11% increase in funding for the violent institution of policing. Some on our side, even from the public budget coalition, coalition table, have claimed this increase was locked in due to the approved fraternal order of police contract but this is inaccurate at best and disingenuous at worst. How is any contractual obligation with the FOP to raise the police budget inaccurate at best and disingenuous at worst?
1: Yeah, because um, the FOP contract covers labor costs primarily, right? And the 11% increase was primarily for labor costs, right? They they had an increase in, in, in income. Um, and so, you know, what some on the left and folks would, would like to say then is just that like, um that's locked in you can't like do nothing about it and um if you did then it's like a violation of the contract and then you're gonna have to fight them which is like all right cool like let's not fight them on it right and um and i think just having a background in labor um even though i don't believe police are police are workers right i'm always suspect of like going back on any kind of contract with um like in in that kind of manner right because it'd be used maybe for other folks so i you know I, i don't think yeah, I don't even think it would be strategic to, 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 to go that route. I think um, what you can easily do is just like cut a bunch of programs that the FOP has, right? Like, me, I mean, not the FOP, sorry, the Chicago Police Department has, right? They just did like this big spending on like hiring community organizers, um, people who make gardens, um, you know, like they have like a data analysis department. They have, uh, you know, like the ShotSpotter contract, right? Like um, there's all these other ways and all these other things that you can just easily cut um percent of the police budget and police would be like fine policing would be fine there would be no um that there would be no impact on the actual um how much you're paying a police officer um or honoring an fop contract um by doing that you know and that's not necessarily that's not even a yeah there, there's no violation that could then be brought to a court that would then stop you from doing the cut you know um, and that could have easily happened and um know and i think um some some of the aldermen fought for the you know like the the, all the socialist aldermen for sure made sure that those budget amendments got brought forward but then and i think this is like when you know you're talking more about the coalition budget table the coalition budget table itself didn't want to make a strong stand on the amendments itself and really do focus turnout around that and really make that a point of contention you know, and that, that, and, and even open up the conversation that it is possible to honor those, um, the, the increases due to the FOP contract and still cut 11%. Um, and you know, if you don't, if we're not doing that, then I don't know what we're doing. Like, I don't, you know, like we're the left, you know, like we we're, we're, we're radicals and progressives and if we don't fight for these things, I just literally in like in informal political spaces, I don't know who is. And then I don't know how you convince people, especially when I think of my homies, my comrades who are like just like cynical about Paul. And these are not, this is not even just like woke world activist world, right? Like this is just like, you know, people who are just cynical and exhausted from politics and government and just do not trust anything. right? the same folks who then are like skeptical of like a vaccine now, right? Is that I don't know how you then convince them, um, hey, go knock doors for this person and turn out to vote for this person, and we're gonna do A, B, and C. If they don't even see you fighting for it, like, you know, like think about like your favorite like basketball team or whatever. Like, even if they lose at times, you just want to see them fight. You know, you just want to see them like go down and be like, you know, this is what I stand on. This is what I believe in. And this is what we're going to fight for, even if they lose. Right. And and, and that's why I'm like, it's not so much about a yes or a no vote or anything like that, which is like how publicly were folks out there saying like, no, like, you know, there is a way to re- reduce the uh, police budget. Um, no, there is a way to get progressive revenue in the city of Chicago. No, we do not have to like pay these banks. And this is how we're not going to pay these banks, you know. Um, and I think on the bank thing, I think folks were a little bit better on. But even then, that was a contentious fight to like, keep that fight going. So, yeah.
0: You write that three defund-related budget amendments were sent to the budget committee to push back against this increase in police budget. However, they were not fought for to be on the agenda for the budget committee, let alone on the agenda for the full city council. These amendments included reducing the advertising budget of the Chicago Police Department by 90%, cutting vacancies for 2022 and ending what you were just mentioning the spot, the shot spotter contract. So let me just go through each of these. First of all, Jason, the Chicago police department has an advertising budget because I have never seen an ad by the Chicago police department, unless they're so good that I didn't even recognize that it was an ad by the Chicago police department. So what is the Chicago police department doing with an advertising budget?
1: Well, it's a, it's their propaganda arm, right? So, um, and it's, you know, it's it's one part of like, you know, them allowed to have their own Twitter accounts and then to like set the narrative to reporters, right? They have, um, and you know, it's, you know, they want they try to separate the communications department from the advertising department, but it's it's better to think of them as one and one and the same. And so that like if they're giving like their narrative of events that happened or like, you know, like the supposed crime panic that we're in or um the Chicago Reader did really good reporting on the like supposed like carjackings that were happening. Right. That was a product of like our adver- uh, of the Chicago Police Department, advertising department and the Chicago Police Communications Department, um, which is, you know, why I think any coercive institution within, you know, like the United States should not have its own um, propaganda arm, you know, should not have its own communications and advertising arm. For these reasons because they'll abuse it and they'll say their side of the things and their version of the things and um you know it's on it's on folks who can actually do independent review of of to assess what's actually happened right when there is like let's say shooting or acts of violence things like that um but yeah i think when we think of how we have compaganda and why we have propaganda, so like when you go to like let's say Sometimes you'll be, I don't know if you ever been like at a little league event and then all of a sudden it's like, it's honoring cops day, you know, um, that's the CPD advertising budget. It's, um, and partially their community, community relations one. Um, or if it's like, you're, you're ever at a, um, you know, they do this also is, um, you know, like when there's like big block parties or like, you know, like all the festivals and in the parks during the summer, um, that's another way then that like CPD will spend money to like boost its image and its brand and all this other stuff you know. Um, meanwhile, right like you never see the you never see like the Chicago public library table at any of these festivals or things you never see the honor your librarian day you never see the honor your. You know um even fire person or you know your um your chicago park district attendant day or anything like that you know um so you know th- that that's that that's what it goes to pay for um it's terrible i don't know what else to say about it <laughs> the, and, um, the chicago
0: yeah. police vending tables too at uh at uh, fairs and festivals that you see here in chicago it's always the table that nobody is at, and it's just sitting there wasting time. It's the most boring table so what yeah. is what is meant by cutting vacancies
1: yeah that um so Chicago you know like supposedly has a lot of like well, not supposedly it does like I mean like on the actual budget, there is vacancies of unfulfilled um un like unfulfilled police off like police officer positions in the in, in the budget and they're comparing it to past budgets right and like what's supposedly said is needed um to have a fully functioning chicago police department so um what the socialist caucus and then um the progressive budget table was saying like um stop saying that we have vacancies there isn't vacancies you know um and um and say that we're not going to fill those positions anymore that like we don't need those more police. Um and so they were fighting on that they're they're not currently funded though. Um and if you were going to get to 11%, I guess you, that's a way of getting to 11% but usually you want um you know uh, yeah and and I too I just want to caution the 11% thing is um that is not divest invest, that's not defund, right? Defund and divest and defund, you know, defund police, refund communities or divest from police, invest in communities um, is the idea that like, you know, the the interpersonal violence that we face today and the structural violence that we face today, especially on the south and west side of Chicago and in most working class and low income, neighborhoods of color and even white working class neighborhoods, though, too. They face that because we have invested so much into policing that um, and that policing does have the impact of actually increasing that, you know, like that level and intensity of the thing that they call crime, poverty um, and divestment um, and sucks away the actual investment that those communities need. And so When we say the 11%, the 11% would just keep the budget as it was last year. It still doesn't divest from police and actually invest in communities. The things that we should have been fighting for was a 25% reduction in police or a 50% reduction or some sort of reduction in policing and then taking that money and investing it in violence interrupters, um, other preventative services, um, violence prevention services um that get at the root cause of violence you know and uh, interrupt violence in our communities um and that's just i think that's the saddest part is like that conversation wasn't happening it was about like how to handle the 11 percent increase instead of being like no it's you know it's defund you know it's it's divest and invest in our communities period and the subject similar to how you know the right wing is about taxes you know Or, you know, abortion, right? Like, I think, you know, we need to be that principled about divest, invest.
0: The DSA says that the shot spotter contract, our alder people have all officially committed to canceling the shot spotter contract and inaccurate technology used by the Chicago Police Department to detect gunfire that is expensive deadly and disproportionately targets Chicago's black and brown communities. We will stand alongside our older people and allies at the doors and in streets until we cancel the ShotSpotter contract. To you, how dangerous is ShotSpotter and, and why doesn't it work, Jason?
1: Yeah, um, I mean, if uh, I'm not sure how people how familiar um, people are with the, the murder of Adam Toledo by um, the Chicago police um, this summer. But um, you know, he was a boy, um, um, you know, from, from Chicago, um, and um, he got, um, you know, the police got the police got a a I guess a detection from a shot spotter um, device, i um, saying shots had been fired. And um, and that's and that's like how ShotSpotter, you know, like they're like a Silicon Valley inspired company that they claim that um, they keep people safe because they're able to detect when shootings are happening. And then the police are able to respond more rapidly to prevent stuff from happening, I guess, you know, Um, there's no actual like reported incident of police, you know, like of police being able to prevent something from ever happening because of this um technology so then um but you know what you what does happen is that then you have officers who get a call a shots fired call which you know put officers on like yo like oh like i might get shot so then they're coming in there with more energy and um and you know they uh, murdered um this 13 year old boy you know and um and re- you know when, when when they showed up for the call and so um and there's and there's other instances like that in regards to shot spotter and so um you know we just need to get rid of it i mean all that kind of tech stuff is nonsense you know it's just not it's um it just puts more of a target on the backs of you know black and latinx and other people of color we're working especially working class folks um and it does nothing to actually prevent um you know, um, murders that are happening in Chicago and, and shootings that are happening in Chicago, you know, especially on the South and West side that people do want to prevent and do want to stop. Um, and if anything, you know, um, people are making millions of dollars off of it. That That's what ShotSpotter does. They make millions of dollars pretending that they can prevent um, murders on the South and West side of Chicago when in fact they can't. And in fact, you um, You know, in our opinion, they're they're just as liable and culpable for being the cause of even more murders, not just interpersonal ones, but um, ones by police.
0: One last question for you, Jason. We have been speaking with Jason Perez, co-author with Bettina Jay, and past This Is Hell guest Brian Bean on the Rampant Mag article, Crumbs and Police Funding. Uh, Crumbs and Police Funding, Assessing the New Chicago Budget. One last question for you, Jason, and as we do with all of our guests We promise our final question (laughs) is the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you may hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. And especially members of our audience who identify as liberals are going to hate your response. You write that when liberals need to find money to fund something like police, they find the money. But when they want to cut or not fund something, even when we can pay for it, they still make the cuts to you Jason, what explains why liberals apparently prioritize police over community services? Does Chicago do Chicago liberals support addressing social services with a carceral system more than with social services?
1: Yeah, I mean that is you know to me the the liberal project supports that because um, you know most of their funders are rich people, right? Particularly rich white people um, who are property developers. Um, And, um, you know, um, financiers, people in finance, people in tax, right? And that's who they care about. And, um, you know, that's what police are for, is to um, enforce capitalist property relations and to make sure that, you know, working class people um, not just can't rise up, right? Because I think sometimes that's where, you know, I think that's where the analysis stops. Not just rise up like in terms of the total revolution sense, but even make social democratic reforms, you know, like police are there to prevent that, right? Police are there to, you know, whenever there's a strike, um, who do we see there, right? We see police, right? Um, Whenever there's, um, whenever there's a protest, for sure, we see that. Um, And, um, you know, in order to prevent workers from organizing, um, you know, workers are surveilled and um, punished for doing so. So that's, you know, liberals are okay with it because they believe that they'll still be in power and they'll still be, you know, and liberals who are especially in and part of the Democratic Party, that they'll still be in the Democratic Party and they'll be fine, that it's not going to come out come with that cost. And especially if you're in a quote unquote, like blue city, it really doesn't have a cost. The costs weren't coming until you had explicit socialist run via Democratic Socialists of America, um, where then the costs have started to uh, um, occur to them. And so, and that's why we need more socialists elected, you know, um, and I don't think it's, this is definitely not, we shouldn't look at this as like, oh, oh we should disregard then the socialist, the, the electoral socialist project. No, I think if anything, we need more of it. And then we need better strategy and we need stronger conversations about our, our political program and how we want to achieve it um, in an incremental way and then also in like a, you know, a maximalist way.
0: Jason, thank you so much for being on the show this week. This is a fantastic piece of writing that you and Bettina and Brian collaborated on. Thank you so much for being on our show and enjoy your weekend. Thank you. Take care. This is not the media. This is hell. If that conversation with J- Jason on how the Chicago city budget is not as progressive as many are telling us, if that made you realize that yes, this really is hell, then show your support by uh, uh, let's see, uh, subscribing to our weekly bonus podcast on Patreon. Patreon.com slash this is hell or go to this is hell.com and click on support to see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener supported This Is Hell. Richard, please remind our listening audience what is this week's question from hell and tell us how some of our listeners are responding.
2: Yes, this week's question from hell is In this house, we believe dot, dot, dot. What? What? (laughs) I love the
0: accent on the question mark.
2: (laughs) Jeff C., he believes should is a swear word. (laughs) Okay. Tomas J., J., uh, in this house, we believe that central heating renovation can wait for warmer planet,
0: <laughs> central air. Screw that.
2: Rowan W answers in this house. We believe bathrooms are for paying customers only. Uh, Adam B. His answer is Chuck should go easier on himself. Fortune cookies never lie, and Alex's mom does, in fact, have some redeeming qualities. <laughs> I uh, don't know who was uh, dissing on Alex's mom. But
0: Uh, but somebody was, apparently.
2: (laughs) Mason W. His answer is, I believe that we will win. (laughs) All right. No Whack Woof. His answer is, the royal we believe. Belief alone is not an option, regardless (laughs) of its content. (laughs) All right. In this house, we believe what? Jeffrey our Jeffrey answers, that Godzilla won the Godzilla vs. Kong match on points alone.
0: You know that movie, Godzilla vs. Kong? The, I knew two the, minutes into that movie. The latest one? Yes. Yes. I, that I, neither Godzilla or Kong was going to lose that fight. <laughs> I knew that within before the credits
2: were over. Of course, they have to have a rematch. <laughs> <laughs> so stupid. Steven S. answers we believe we can solve the world's problems with radical decentralized ubi that could potentially be achieved through crypto and gaming but we haven't ironed that idea out enough yet to explain it <laughs> all right our ladio is the answer his answer is this question answers itself like the thirst that is the drink and yes i do believe in what <laughs> more strongly than ever. <laughs> I think that was a typo there. Uh, Ronaldo, he answers We believe that the existence of pasta fazol is a very good reason not to commit suicide. <laughs>
0: Laddie says, So Laddie says, In this house, we believe what? And he says, He believes what? <laughs> <laughs> I do kind of like that. <laughs> okay, keep going. Or unless you want to. Yes.
2: No, I uh, have a few more. Okay. Uh, Mark A. Answers, in this house we believe all money talks, all BS walks. <laughs> That's good. Wozniak answers, we can believe it's butter. Okay. So, now I have a very long answer. Do we want to do this now or after?
0: Uh, let's wait till after. Very good. And then we have some more on Twitter that yes, we want to share. Sure. Keeping it real, real deep in debt since 1996, This Is Hell. And if you want to help us climb out of that debt, you can subscribe to our Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash Hell on Patreon this week. Remember what I said about killing two birds with one stone earlier on this morning's show? Here's why I keep repeating that awful phrase. Yesterday afternoon, while researching and writing for today's show, I heard from This Is Hell correspondent in Brazil, Brian Mir, who reports for Telesur English, Brazil Wire, and Brazil 24-7. Brian is in the process of editing an upcoming issue of Lumpen Magazine. Lumpen is where I first stumbled upon Brian's writing way back in the late 1990s, right around the time we were started airing This Is Hell. In fact, we now air a 1-hour edition of This Is Hell on Lumpen Radio on Chicago South Side, which is broadcast from the Co-Prosperity Sphere on Morgan in the Brid- Bridgeport neighborhood. Brian asked yesterday if I would be willing to contribute An 800 to 1000 Word essay on the history Of this is hell An idea Brian admits was actually from Edmar The person behind all things Lumpen All of which means on Patreon, I'll be sharing a rough draft, the first draft of a brief history of This Is Hell in 800 to 1,000 words, a version of the writing I will be submitting to Brian Muir and will, hopefully, if accepted, be printed in an upcoming issue of Lumpen Magazine. Find out more about Lumpen at lumpenmagazine.org or just go to lumpen.com, as apparently Edmar bought every possible... Iteration of Lumpen as a URL We will also be sharing a classic Interview from our archives that cannot Be found anywhere else online and this week's Featured interview came up in the writing Of yesterday's guest Ajay Singh Chaudhry who wrote the Baffler magazine article The Extractive Circuit, An Exhausted Planet at the End of Growth. The research and writing for Interviews uh, often leads to Research that never gets shared On air and questions that Never get asked. For instance in Ajay's writing At the Baffler he asks what he asks that we imagine a global North worker across the globe, likely middle class, probably white, but not necessarily uh, so, uh, place her in California, an increasingly unsuitable geography for mass human habitation. Say she's white collar, uh, perhaps an office assistant, a- accountant, or coder. In the 1970s, her labor would likely have been lower in wage hours than it is today, and it would have included in the famous phrase of sociologist Arlie Hochschild, A second shift of unwage-free domestic labor, cooking, cleaning, care work, the often invisible aspects of social reproduction found in the home. Today, our imaginary Californian worker works longer hours in a productivity-optimized labor process, still for a lower wage than a male counterpart, even as part of her second shift is now itself displaced onto migrant labor, including everything from general health care work to at-home Care And domestic work To independent contract labor For household maintenance Which can range from Food preparation and delivery To in concentrated urban centers Laundry and far beyond The extractive circuit Produces prodigious amounts Of such disposable people While I still ask the Jay What impact that disposability Has on workers' ability to organize and form a labor movement, I skipped over the part about how Arlie was the one who coined the term second shift in her 1989 book of the same title. What I did not mention also is how Arlie followed up with another book on the topic titled The Outsourced Self, What Happens When We Pay Others to Live Our Lives for Us, which we discussed with Arlie back in 2013. Back then, Arlie feared what it would mean for what she calls the personal realm of human existence. As we learned on this show this week, climate change-induced migration is leading to those fleeing global warming, filling the jobs that live our lives for us. So we will be sharing that interview with Arlie this Friday on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell. But if you want to hear a brief history of This Is Hell before it's published in Lumpen Magazine and a conversation about what it means to pay others to do all our dirty work for us, subscribe to our weekly Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell. Live from Hangover Country, this is Hell, and I know you have Jefe on the line. What?
3: Envision your goals. Welcome to the moment of truth, the thirst that is the drink. This is a pep talk for me, but I suspect others can use one too. I was reading an article about how entrepreneurs like the Firefest guy and the fake blood machine woman have conned investment cash out of venture capitalists. One of the startup companies mentioned was WeWork. A real estate company, I guess, specializing in incubator-type spaces or something, where people working on a project together would live in the same space, maybe, or just inhabit the space somehow. But the space would be specifically curated to cater to a group who wanted to be, I don't know, entrepreneurial or some shit. Like, maybe the type of people who would develop a company like WeWork, the company specializing in spaces for groups of people getting together to come up with companies like WeWork companies that are con jobs, specifically structured to take investors' money, fascinate me because they demonstrate how fucking brainless capitalists are, and how expecting vacuous, greedy twatism as a philosophy to somehow improve society can lead to hilarious disasters. WeWork started out with a hefty valuation of forty-seven billion dollars, one that dwindled to, I think, currently. Do not quote me on this. What caught my eye, though, was a phrase in their fishing literature that attracted investors. There was a kibbutz-like atmosphere at the company, or in its buildings, or some such garbage. Whatever you think about Israel a kibbutz is a socialist socioeconomic relationship between its members often built around a few small industries crops and livestock there's a seniority system but at every level the fruits of labor are shared out equally and decisions are decisions about just about everything are made democratically children are all raised together so they are like siblings a lot of siblings the thing that surprised me is that Anyone would consider a kibbutz or any socialist enterprise an attractive advertising analogy. But then I got to thinking how successful many left efforts have been in the marketplace. Greenwashing is, of course, when a vile corporation, the sole purpose of which is to make as much profit as possible, pretends to the public that it cares about the environment. Greenwashing is a huge part of any polluting company's PR budget. Likewise, sensitivity across the gender, ethnicity, and racial spectrum. Wokeness, as the right-wingers who despise liberals would have it. Corporations are the marketplace. Advertising is by far the humanity's greatest expenditure on education. And all that fake education is a worldwide effort to sell compassion on the part of entities for whom the impulse to be compassionate doesn't exist. Of course, in the realm of advertising, a.k.a. propaganda, compassion and wokeness appear fake, because all corporate education is indeed fake. Liberalism and many left issues, even decent treatment of workers, as long as it isn't too specific, like unionization and benefits and wages, have been co-opted by the lyingest organisms in our society. For this reason... Such issues have become stigmatized. The people who want to blame government and liberals for everything only have to mention an issue such as caring about wildlife habitats or caring about child nutrition or caring about getting teachers decent pay. They only have to mention such issues in a way that echoes the capitalist's shallow rendering to convince a great mass of people of the shallowness and valuelessness of the individual human beings who actually care about such things. This is why we have to focus on the one problem with capitalism that it can't co-opt. Capitalism is destroying civilization and the planet. Capitalism must be destroyed for the sake of civilization and the planet. Obviously, that means we must continue to culturally criminalize imperialism, but I can foresee corporate capitalism co-opting anti-imperialism too. Corporations already have public relations materials about how much better they make the lives of people in the nations they steal resources from. Smiling Nigerian child actors receiving iPads in their schools, while meanwhile in real life the military paid by the oil company mows down Nigerian protesters. We've already gone a long way toward culturally criminalizing being super rich. Mocking the three billionaire space stooges is pretty much mainstream. It's going to take a lot of work to bring that criminalization from cultural stigma to material stigma, but the longer capitalism sticks to its doctrine of private property accumulation, which by its nature it must, the more visceral and material that crime is going to feel to the people. We may never get the working to middle class superpatriots on board, they're kept satisfied by a SCOTUS that's been been bought with dark money because the Cock, Carlisle, and Cargill, KKK, I spelled all those names with K, Cock, Carlisle, and Cargill, KKK, the KKK Supreme Court, makes the same theocratic culture war noises the jingoist super patriots do, and no, we shouldn't tailor our declarations or actions to avoid being mocked by them, but their propaganda calling out the fake compassion of the left supported by the fake compassion propaganda of corporate feudalism, affects those still wandering in the old paradigm of we can fix all this with good old American stick to and gumption. We have to give the right as few tools as possible to spread their message, and the tools they have we must take away. No more applauding the wealth accumulation achievements of someone just because they're a person of color. Wealth accumulation is not admirable and yes it's great that there's a first nations woman who's now secretary of the interior but is it is it really how about we judge her actions on their merits not freighted with her people's heritage as if that has merit that attaches to whatever policies she chooses to pursue no matter how destructive or ineffectual if the policies she follows are wonderful well that's wonderful if they're not We don't have to pretend to be happy that at least it was a Native American who sold out the sacred lands and water to the oil companies. It's been said so many times that it's almost a truism. The majority of people in this country support progressive policies, and the generation coming up is way more on board with actual socialist solutions to our problems, especially as they are the only solutions that can reasonably be expected to work. Incidentally, this Generation Z... Can we just call all generations Generation Z from now on? There's a popular idea that we should call the generation just being born Generation Alpha. That is completely uncalled for. Until we fix it so human civilization will survive into the future, all generations from now on should be called Generation Z, because any generation from now on is likely to be the last. If we get through the next half century with a reasonable expectation that humanity will indeed have a future. I'd be fine if we called the generation starting in that new world Generation Alpha, but to call any generation anything that seems like a beginning rather than an end under the current circumstances, which promise only to grow more dire, is a categorical error. If your politics doesn't center working to turn around the climate disaster, the mass extinction, mass human impoverishment, and the persecution of poor people— It's just irrelevant to what we need to be doing, in my opinion. And the solution to turning around all these catastrophes hinges on wealth being used for purposes other than to enrich a small fraction of privileged humanity. That suggests a full overhaul of the global economy. I don't care how we get there, but that has to be the goal. Petty arguments about who gets to be on postage stamps are totally relevant when one is discussing postage stamps and who has historically gotten to be on them. The argument about who gets to wear the Tiffany diamond necklace is fine and relevant if you're arguing about necklaces and the status connotations of the wearer, their identity, and the place people with their identity have traditionally been relegated to in fashion history. But don't act like Beyonce wearing the Tiffany diamond necklace constitutes progress toward a world where society refuses to allow people to go hungry or be forced to sleep under highway overpasses without access even to a legal place to relieve and wash themselves. Let's not act like a Secretary of the Interior being Native American automatically makes a livable future for plant and animal life a more likely scenario than it was before she was installed. Obviously, right now, nothing seems probable. But that's all the more reason to do triage on the actions and language that can bring the world we want closer to reality, however unlikely that reality might seem at the present. That's a goal of mine. I'm working on making it real in an economy that sort of doesn't want me to live if I rebel against it. Goals. I'm not great at them. But I believe I can learn. This has been the Moment of Truth. Good day.
0: I have a question for you, Jeffy. You do? Yes. So Mm -hmm. what's more disturbing? Yesterday, I found a used condom on the front stoop of our office and studio space here. Mm -hmm. Or today, seeing that the used condom was gone. To you, which is more disturbing that someone used a condom on our front stoop or that someone else took it away overnight?
3: Well, okay. Using a condom is a, a good thing. So finding the used condom is a, is a sign of a good thing. So that's not disturbing to me at all. Okay. It's disturbing that somebody took it away and maybe he was going to use it again. <laughs> or Mel took it and was using it. I don't know. Um, <laughs>
0: Mel does not go it. up front, thank God. And I, to uh, the best of my knowledge, he does not use uh, condoms. I think he's had a vasectomy.
3: Oh, well, that's excellent. Okay, so... Uh, The second one is much more disturbing that someone picked it up and thought like, I'm going to keep this as a souvenir (laughs) or I'm going to use this right now.
0: (laughs) Thank you for clearing that up for me.
3: Uh, Chuck. Yes. Kong clearly lost the Godzilla versus (laughs) Kong battle. Kong had to retreat to uh, the hollow earth. (laughs) But I thought that
0: was a, a victory for him. At least he wasn't out in the wild world where he shouldn't be anyway.
3: Yeah, they put a positive spin on it. But, you know, he's got to walk around under those upside down mountains. That's like, I got to be disoriented. Yeah. <laughs> uh,
0: when, when I was watching the movie with my girly, I, I just stopped it in the middle of the credits and I said, What are you certain about in this movie? And she said, <laughs> Neither Godzilla or King Kong will lose this, and there will be a third monster who will be the loser of this fight.
3: Oh wow! See, I would not have predicted that.
0: Yeah, and that's what happened.
3: Oh, but it was a mechanical
0: monster. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't really count, really.
3: It doesn't really Mecha Godzilla it, was it, it, or Mecha? It looked Kong, like a
0: I uh, refugee from Transformers movies.
3: Well, you know there were there were a lot of uh, people put out of business when that franchise kind of folded. Thankfully, they folded into the shape of a car.
0: But... <laughs> all right. On that note, Jeffy, what? Stay beautiful. Okay. Live from land stolen from the Potawatomi people, this is Hell. Richard, please remind our listening audience what is this week's question from Hell and and share with us the rest of our listeners' responses.
2: This week's question from Hell is, In this house, we believe what? (laughs) Spencer N. says, In this house, we believe this house is not a place of honor. No highly esteemed deed is commemorated here. Nothing valued is here. What is here was dangerous and repulsive to us. This message is a warning about danger. The danger is in a particular location. It increases towards a center. The center of danger is here, of a particular size and shape and below us. The danger is still present. In your time as it was in ours. The danger is to the body and it can kill. The form of the danger is an emanation of energy. The danger is unleashed only if you substantially disturb this place physically. This place is best shunned and left uninhabited.
0: So, does Spencer know that we do not pay by the word? And
2: also, he replied to his own message <laughs> and self congratulated himself about such an amazing joke.
0: <laughs> but he attributes it to somebody else, that he had actually stolen it from somebody else. I guess. I don't know. Yeah. I stopped reading us. <laughs> Keep going. Give us some more answers to this week's question, Mel.
2: In this house, we believe what? Sloan answers, in this house we believe, we believe, we believe in love. Oh yeah! Neil C answers, in playing it close to the vest. (laughs) Cat F answers that this is a house of God. God dang it.
0: (laughs) Thank you for cleaning that up so Alex didn't
2: have to. David S his answer is, in not inflicting our beliefs on passerby (laughs) and irony. (laughs) Seth, E believes a hot dog is not a sandwich. <laughs>
3: Jesus. <laughs>
2: Benedict S. answers, nothing. Lebowski, nothing. <laughs> now we have some uh, amazing uh, Twitter answers. <laughs> oh my
0: God, these, these they really rocked this week.
2: So, uh, Beetle PC answered with a, photog- a photo of... Or a picture of a uh, one of those signs, lawn si- a lawn sign, yeah. like a, line, a sign that you put out on your lawn. It's all in multiple colors,
0: just like the ones you see that say, "This house believes in." Yes.
2: And this is "In this house, we believe Farrakhan is Jesus." <laughs> white people possessed by aliens. Scientology works, and then it's really difficult to read the red, but it says women should have gifts. <laughs> Love hurts. Everything is one. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I want to know where that sign is. I would give it to them as the best answer to the question from hell, but it's just a photo of a sign, you know? If they just typed that in, I would have believed that they made it up. I want that sign. If anybody can get me that Farrakhan, uh, this house believes in sign, please get me a copy of that sign, and we will give it away as a raffle gift at next year's anniversary party. All right, got some more?
2: Yeah, so uh, Nom Nom De Bloom uh, answers, and it's sort of a reply to the photo, that a yard sign will serve as an acceptable substitute for (laughs) lamb's blood.
0: I love that one.
2: Islands in the Gulf Stream is collapsing. Answer is, profit is value stolen from labor. Climate change is class war. Cops lie. Okay. In this house, we believe what? Alec like answers, your magic is real. <laughs> Austin answers, on March 13th, 1997, a series of unexplainable lights in a V formation flew over the states of Arizona, Nevada, and Sonora, later called the Phoenix Lights. <laughs> so
0: that's what that house believes in.
2: <laughs> Stray Shine answers, gentrification will be v- will be veneered in performative wokeness. Okay. And uh, I guess it's a cult, something. F.T.N. We're in hell. <laughs> okay. And our buddy Eat Fart sixty nine, that having COL or quote cat on lap <laughs> is a valid excuse for not getting up to do something. <laughs> Just a few more. J.B. answers through significant negotiation and clear boundaries. Pineapple can go on pizza. <laughs> All the time. That's my answer. Tara or Tara Dactyl Linear time isn't real. Consciousness is a social construct and snakes are everything. Oh, sorry, that snacks are everything. <laughs> humbug, last answer humbug, answers that mayonnaise. Is a spice
0: Mayonnaise is not a spice I'm sorry I don't care what your house believes in The answers I liked most Were Adam's answer Of Chuck should go easier on himself Fortune cookies never lie And Alex's mom does In fact Have some redeeming qualities That's because so many people Reply to the question from hell With your mom And so they figure They're targeting Alex's mom Of course, it could be related to my mom or the universal mom, Gaia. uh, Rowan's answer is, in this house, we believe bathrooms are for paying customers only. Bradley saying, or asking, we have a house? Joel saying that daylight savings time is evil. That's what Joel's house believes in, and to Joel's point, did you know that studies link the lack of sleep at the start of daylight savings time to increased car accidents, workplace injuries, suicide, And miscarriages? Marco's answer is, in this house, we believe in science, kindness, and revenge. Kim, who recently won the question from hell, her response to this week's question from hell, this house believes in that someone will eventually vacuum. Marianne saying... The human race is the worst thing to ever happen in the history of the universe. Fabio saying, in this house, we believe the rent is too damn high. David saying that in this house, they believe in not inflicting our beliefs on passersby. And irony. Warren saying, in this house, we never doubt the stupidity of humans in large groups. I also like Tara saying... That in this house we believe linear time isn't real Consciousness is a social construct And snakes, I mean snacks are everything Austin saying that on March 13, 1997 A series of unexplainable lights in a V formation Flew over the states of Arizona, Nevada, and Sonora Later called the Phoenix Lights But my favorite answer to this week's question from hell Is Nom Nom De Plume Saying on Twitter That a yard sign will serve as an acceptable substitute for Lamb's Blood Nom Nom de Plume, you are the winner of this week's Question from Hell If you can get Lamb's Blood at the end of an answer to the Question from Hell You've pretty much locked in being the winner of the Question from Hell Nom Nom de Plume, you have won basically whatever This Is Hell merchandise you want Go to thisishell.com and click on support and then email us your mailing address to chuck at or message us via facebook and we will get your chosen prize from the this is hell catalog of merchandise to you post haste my answer to this week's question from hell is in this house we believe what in this house we believe what well in this house we believe Yard signs are stupid. Bumper stickers should be issued. Oh, and bumper stickers are stupid too. And if you have both yard signs and bumper stickers that tell everyone what you believe, I've got news for you. Nobody freaking cares. Thanks to everyone for sending in your answers to this week's question from hell. Richard, Do we have anyone scheduled to be on next week's set of shows?
2: We have one guest lined up for Wednesday, Magda El-Ghizoli, on his Spectre Journal article, Counter-Revolution in Sudan.
0: I'm looking forward to that. A follow-up to our conversation this week on Darfur. And, of course, next Wednesday, Jeff Dortchen will be delivering another moment of truth. We start every week's live streaming shows here at ThisIsHell.com by revealing this week's Hangover Cure. This week's Hangover Cure is In the Bible. And it's amethyst Thanks to this week's guests Including Jerome Tubiana Who wrote the Baffler magazine article Land of Thirst Climate Migration in Darfur Thanks to another author of a Baffler Magazine article, Ajay Singh Chaudhry for being on yesterday's show His article is titled, The Extractive Circuit, An Exhausted Planet at the End of Growth. Thanks to today's guest Jason Perez, co-author of the Rampant Mag article, Crumbs and Police Funding, Assessing the New Chicago Budget. Thanks to Alexander Jerry for producing. Thanks to Richard Norwood and Jess Lipka for running the board this week, as well as Alex. Thanks to Jeff Dorchin for another Moment of Truth and Ronaldo Magald For this week in Rotten History Talk to you Friday On Patreon At patreon.com slash Hell. Subscribe now I will be sharing a brief history of This Is Hell Before it appears in print in Lumpen Magazine And we'll also be sharing a 2013 interview With award-winning author Arlie Hochschild About her book The Outsourced Self And what it means for humanity When we have others do all our dirty work for us I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap radio show Podcast live-streaming host Chuck Mertz There's only one way to deal with all of the different problems that we've introduced to you on this week's show. That's by sitting down in the lotus position, turning your palms towards the sky, focusing on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead and saying the simple words, everybody's stupid. My demon
3: is on my butt.
1: Uh, (laughs) My
3: demon talks to me in profanity like a Uh cellar. And my demon tries to knock me down.